Thank you, uh, worship team, leading us in praise. Love the, the songs, just focusing on the solid foundation, the anchor of Christ that we hold on to. It's a wonderful truth. That's a great truth uh, for us as we're, uh, when we come to Christ at the very moment. It's a good truth for uh, throughout life, and it's a great truth for the end of life. And just to hold on to Jesus Christ. He is the sure foundation, the, the steady anchor of our souls. And so just wonderful truth. Appreciate that reminder. Thank you. Praise God. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Titus this morning. That's what we'll be. Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. We go back to the book of Titus. I'm back to our exposition of uh, this, this wonderful letter that Paul writes to young Titus, who was uh, pastoring, shepherding the, the churches on the island of Crete. And so, you know, Crete, it was a, a very difficult ministry. Uh, people in Crete were kind of known for being rebellious people and uh, they were sort of a, just a, a kind of a, in fact, they gloried in their, in their sinfulness. And so Titus had his hands full, and so he writes this book really to challenge the people that, uh, that as Christians, uh, you believe in a gospel that is to transform your lives and to lead to godliness. And so that's kind of this book, and then as we've been going through it, hopefully uh, we understand the importance of the gospel for our lives. That's not just what we need to for to to get into heaven, to go to, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's a gospel that changes and, and transforms our lives because of this doctrine that we hold to. It's a, it's a sound doctrine, a healthy doctrine. So that's where, we're gonna get, where we've been going, and that's where we're at uh, this morning as we pick up verses 9 and 10. So uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, so just two brief verses, but it's a kind of a heavy, it's, it's a heavy subject matter because it deals with something that we don't normally think about, or at least we know something we think about is a, in a very negative sense. But uh, I'll read Titus 2, 9 and 10 for us, and uh, let's, let's end, and then we'll pray. Paul writes to Titus, he tells him to urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come to your word, we ask that your spirit be our teacher. Lord, may you cause your word to go forth and not return void. Lord, each soul here gathered came to hear and worship, to worship you and to hear from your mouth. We pray that your spirit would take your word and speak to each one exactly that which you need them to hear. And Lord, may we hear your word, and Lord, that we would be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, uh, cause, uh, take your word and cause us to be convicted and challenge us, and Lord, transform us through your word, that Lord, you would be glorified, Christ would be magnified, and Father, we desire to be a, zeal, a people zealous for good deeds because Christ has died for us. So, Lord, we thank you again for this time and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the more challenging tasks uh, that we find as, we, as a preacher is when you come across passages that are kind of, they're, they're heavy passages. They're passages that, that describe uh, institutions that are, at least in our present day, are quite peculiar and strange. Uh, sometimes we get the passages that are just odd, like when you get to the baptism for the dead passage, like, whoa, what's that all about? And sometimes we come across passages like polygamy, and you're like, whoa, that's, that's kind of odd. Um, today's passage is one of those passages because it comes and talks about the institution of slavery, an institution that existed in uh, the, both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. 
It was uh, common throughout the Bible. And these are things, particularly, uh, particularly uh, slavery, it's something that we find in, because of our particular uh, history, American history, with our experience with slavery, it's something that's quite objectionable to us when we think about slavery. And yet, when we look at the scriptures, when we come to just a simple passages like today, we find that uh, it's not explicitly, slavery is not explicitly condemned nor corrected in this particular text. And so we, we kind of wondered, is, is God approving of slavery? Now, slavery and slaves were a significant element in the population and during biblical times. Uh, consequently, there were many who were Christians as, as, uh, uh, that were slaves and they were part of uh, the churches on the island of Crete. Now, uh, when people, how people became slaves, uh, sometimes the scholars will say, well, there's some that were uh, voluntarily became slaves. And I kind of, I think that's really, I don't know if that's really what they wanted to do in the first place. But they voluntarily in the sense that, well, they had a choice. They were in debt and so they needed to pay their debt. And so they would sell themselves into in, uh, bonded servitude. Sometimes that's why they call bonded slaves or bond servants. Sometimes they would sell their children into slavery uh, to pay off debts as well. So it's a, uh, it's, a, it's kind of described as voluntary, but you know, I like, uh, I don't think anyone really wants to do that ever, uh, unless they're completely uh, at the end and, and no other option. Then there are those that were involuntarily became slaves, and that's the majority of slaves in the Roman Empire. They were sold uh, for, for, uh, as punishment for their crimes, perhaps. They were born to slavery. They were enslaved through war or piracy. And so uh, that was, uh, and among slave, there, the many slaves in the Roman Empire, there were all sorts. Uh, there were uh, slaves that were of, the, of government. They were made slaves to kind of be, uh, to be soldiers. There were slaves, and, but the most common type of slavery was perhaps the household slaves, those who served within different households within the empire uh, as stewards, as uh, maybe uh, people who would care, take, take care of the children, uh, people who work on the farms, work on the, cleaning the homes and things like that. Now, even though slaves were, in those days, considered to be of lesser social standing uh, compared to other uh, citizens that were free, slaves played an equal and vital part in healthy churches uh, throughout uh, uh, the, uh, the biblical, uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, and we think about slavery, uh, we, we know it was common back in biblical times, and we kind of wonder, is slavery still common today? Well, we don't have household slaves, at least uh, here, in, in, at least among us, I believe. And in, even though in our modern day, slavery is outlawed in practically every country, I believe it's every country, still, there is a form of slavery that continues to exist in our world today. As many of we, us are aware, particularly being in San Francisco, we're kind of aware about these issues. And the form of bonded labor, forced labor, and sex trafficking, these all still remain. Uh, there's uh, current estimates for the number of uh, slaves in the world today, uh, men, women, children, is estimated around, uh, one number has an estimate about a little over 29 million. It's a lot of people enslaved, enslaved and, and supposedly outlawed by every country. Now, as we grow in our understanding of modern-day slavery, uh, and this is not a message about modern-day slavery, but I think I understand, hopefully we here at San Francisco, we kind of understand the sentiment that's something that uh, as Christians and as citizens of this world, we, want, we would we'd like to oppose that. We, we believe that's wrong. 
That's morally wrong. And that if, if God gives us opportunity to do something about it, as a mercy ministry has done it in, in different ways, we want to be able to do our little part, even though we may not be the William Wilberforce of this day. But we wonder and we ask well, sometimes, when it comes to the scriptures, we who understand, kind of, we, under, we kind of feel this way, we ask, why does God then seem to be silent? We come across the past when he says, he tells, well, tell slaves to do this. What? what? Is God saying that slavery is okay? But the only way that we would know and would come to realize that God is opposed to it. Now, I did say we are morally opposed to it. And I don't just say that because we're, it's a humanism. This is God. God is morally opposed to it. But when we have to, we'd have to actually consider all the relevant passages of Scripture. Today's text, of course, addresses slaves. It's a very uh, heady subject to slavery. And I thought it would be helpful for us, just really as an introduction, and I want to spend quite a, a little bit of time here, to consider some of the other texts of Scripture that talk about slavery. And just a little bit of equipping for you so that you would understand why, as Christians, uh, you, why you think the way you, th you should think about slavery and how you can handle when someone says, well, the Bible says, uh, talks about slaves, and so is that, therefore, Christians are okay with slavery. And in our history, in American history, as well, world history, uh, people have used the Bible to justify slavery as well. But does the Bible justify slavery? Let's take a look at some of the uh, passages that are kind of relevant for us. First of all, just there, kind of, I'm going to give you three uh, three sort of general teachings from the Scripture, kind of summarize all the passages. Well, New Testament passages. I didn't. Old Testament is just way more, but just some of the New Testament principles here. Principle number one: whether slave or free, all are of the same standing before God. When we look at the Scriptures. When God looks at slaves, when God looks at free, when he talks about Gentiles and Jews and uh, uh, male and female, he really, all these various passages that we have listed there, they all describe that before God, there is no distinction between any of these different groups, that he sees them all the same. He sees them all, the, that is, those that are believers in Christ, one in him, one in Christ. And that's an important background. And God does not say, well, I see you less because you're a slave, or I think of you as being not as important because you're a slave, or you're more important because you're free. You're all valuable equally before God because of Christ. Secondly, the second truth that we find in the New Testament is this, that number two, Christian masters are to see their Christian slaves no longer as slaves, but as brothers in Christ, or sisters in Christ as well. And we see this all throughout the book of Philemon. Philemon's a book, that book about forgiveness, and where uh, Paul writes to Philemon to receive back that runaway slave, Onesimus. And he tells him, and particularly in verse 16, that when he, as he receives the runaway slave, Onesimus, to receive him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and the Lord. And so Paul doesn't explicitly say, well, hey, I want you to set him free. But he's, uh, because legally, uh, he doesn't have that kind of uh, power. But he, just by his words, he tells, he tells uh, Philemon to look, receive him not, no longer as a slave. That's, pretty, that's about as clear as you can say without saying, uh, set him free, won't you? <laughs> but, you know, but he says, no longer as a slave. But think of him as your brother. Would you enslave your brother? No, I don't think so. Well, unless you are like Joseph's brothers, okay? But that's not a good thing. Well, thirdly, 
Uh, third principle we learn in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, is while freedom should be sought, that is by slaves, all Christians are ultimately free in Christ and slaves of Christ. And we see this uh, in this, probably the most key text about slavery in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 24. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, I want to read this for you, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 24. And I, I don't, didn't put it up, but you can uh, just note it down. I'm going to read it for you. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he said, Were you called while a slave? Did you become a Christian while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. So he says, verse 21 says, you know, if you're, you're a slave, you, you became a Christian, don't worry about the fact that you're a slave so much. That's not the important thing. If you're able to become free, yeah, do that. Do that. So he doesn't encourage them if it's possible. Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So here's the, kind of the, 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 the profound reality that if you're called the Lord, you became a Christian while a slave, in reality, you're the Lord's freedman. We just read about uh, John from John 8 and our call to worship about the, tr- the truth of Christ will set you free. And <clears throat> you're free from slavery to sin. And, <clears throat> and <clears throat> so all who are believers in Christ are in reality free. Whatever your social standing, whether you're a slave, whether you're a free person, you have been set free in Christ from the greatest slavery of all, and that is slavery to sin. But at the same time, he says in verse 22, if you're free, you're saved while you're free, you're Christ's slave. Now all of us as believers in Jesus Christ, in reality, we are all slaves of Christ. You know, try not to read a new te- uh, you know, American slavery into that. Understand just the New Testament slavery, the concept of New Testament slavery into it, that it is the uh, concept of one who, has, who answers to a master whose life does not belong to his own but belongs to their master who seeks to please and to serve their master because their master has paid for them. Is that not Christianity? Has our, not our master paid for us to set us free? Does, does our lives not belong to him? Do we not exist for him? Do we not desire to please him and worship him? We are all slaves in Christ because of him. And, and so uh, verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And there's the profound thing. So here's the, the fact that you're bought with a price, don't become slaves. You know, I know, of course, no one wants to become a slave. But here's the principle for Christians. Don't allow yourselves to become enslaved. Do not become slaves of men. So it's a, and that's kind of a, without explicit saying, God hates slavery. But he says, because of our freedom in Christ, we've been bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. Brethren, each one of us remain with God in that condition in which he was called. And so the important thing is that we are with God. We're with God, whether we're slaves, whether we're free in, that, in our social, uh, social cir- cir- circumstances, situation. What's most important is that we are with God and with Christ. We are not only free, but we're also slaves of Christ. Well, I said three, but uh, there's even four. So let's give you a fourth principle. And this is the fourth principle. I love doing this. <laughs> Very biblical sounding. In serving their earthly masters, Christian slaves serve their heavenly master. So this is how uh, the slavery to Christ fleshes out. If you're a slave or even if you're free, particularly if you're a slave, you're serving your earthly masters. That is how you serve your heavenly master. And we see this principle brought out in the majority of New Testament slavery texts. The majority, I'm going to list all of them for you here there. 
And that's what we find here in our passage today in Titus chapter 2. We find that Paul encourages the bond slaves of Christ, those who are slaves in, in earthly, earthly slaves, are called then to, some, to obey, to submit to their masters and serve them uh, with uh, sincerity and honesty and with, all, with faithfulness. <clears throat> Is the battery dead? Okay, it's back on, all right. The church needs, the church needs bond servants, bond slaves, who conduct themselves in such a way that reflects the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. It's not like the earthly masters need serving, but they, the slaves serve their earthly masters in a way as, they serve, as if they were serving the Lord to show the transforming power of the gospel. This morning's text exhorts bond servants to live godly lives that are befitting of the sound doctrine that, sh- that shows and brings to, 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 uh, uh, to, f- to the front the gospel of Christ. And we apply this today, and many of us already know that you apply a lot of these slavery texts to, we apply it to our work as employees. We answer to a master, to a boss. And, and when we apply it to ourselves as bosses, and we, uh, one of the ways that's going to help us apply this to ourselves this morning is that many of us, and the challenging, a challenge for us to think about is that we see our jobs, the majority of us see our jobs as something for our own benefit. That's what most of us see jobs as. And we start off jobs saying, well, that's for me. That's for my benefit. I need it because uh, I need to provide for my family. I need to, you know, I want to look for something that's fulfilling for myself. I want to fulfill uh, my calling. We choose to do a certain work because of any number of things, including power, prestige, or the pay that one receives from that position. But God wants Christian workers, Christian slaves, Christian employees, to use their jobs, to see their jobs as a means for the glory of the gospel of Christ. That's the point I want to, hopefully we can draw home today as we look at the text. In Titus chapter 2, we just a brief review now before we get to the, these two verses. Paul exhorts Titus to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. He's exhort the church to conduct themselves in a manner that reflects the doctrine of Christ. He is to, uh, in, and he, in verses 2 to 10, Paul encourages Titus to, to speak to these five different groups of people in the church community. He is to tell them about conduct befitting of sound doctrine. He has is, he is addressed the older men. Uh, he has addressed the older women. He's addressed the, the younger women, the younger men. And now in verses 9 through 10, he addresses the bond slaves, this final group. And as an outline for us uh, today, we will look at five godly qualities of bond slaves that befit sound doctrine. Uh, they're pretty straightforward, uh, I think. They should kind of read it. You know, I think I know what that means, not only for slaves, but I think we can, uh, can grasp what that would mean for me as an employee, as a worker. And I know some of you are maybe self-employed, and you say, well, uh, good thing. Uh, you, know, you're not, you don't work for anybody. Uh, but even as you uh, fulfill, do your work, uh, that may be some of these things. Or as you go about uh, volunteering here in the church, that you see that even your work here at the church is something that uh, you could apply this to as well. So number one, we see ver- uh, these five qualities of godly bond service that reflect the gospel of Christ. 
The first godly quality is that they are to be subject. Be submissive is another way to uh, translate this verb. In verse 9, we see that Paul writes in verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. Uh, there's no, in the NAS, the urge is implied from verse 6. Titus, in his task as a preacher of Christ and a fellow associate Paul, is to urge the different groups and he is to urge bond slaves now. He addresses these bond slaves. And NAS translates bond slaves. Some versions translate bond servants. Some will even translate it as slaves. The word literally is slave. But most of our English translations avoid that translation because of just the, the in our English language, the connotations that are so negative with the term slavery that people just can't, it's hard to get over that word. It's just like, whoa, that's, that's just so, uh, you know, it, it's, it conveys other things to us than just the New Testament broad sense of that word. But the word of, uh, in Greek is doulos. It's kind of a familiar term for it. Some of we've heard it before. It's translated in all those different ways. Now, uh, the, these are basically doulases or slaves or bond slaves or bond servants or those who are bound in servitude to another human being. That's the simplest definition. Bound in servitude to another human being, another person. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Paul himself identifies himself as a bond slave, a bondservant. He does so in his introduction to the letter in chapter 1, verse 1. He is a bondservant of God. It reveals Paul's understanding that as Christians, we are all slaves of Christ. And it's because we are all slaves of Christ that he urges the bond slaves, the earthly bond slaves, to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be subject here is the same verb, same instruction that was given to young women above in, in verse 5. The verb literally means to, to place yourself under or to arrange under someone's authority, someone's, uh, someone's leadership. Uh, as was the case with the, the young woman in verse 5, the voice of this verb here, this verb be subject, it indicates that it is a voluntary submission. And it's much more profound here when applied to slaves, isn't it? For wives, you say, well, you are to voluntarily submit yourself to your husband. You say, okay, I get that. Yeah, all right, yeah. Your husband can't force you to do it. But here Paul is telling slaves to voluntarily submit yourself to your masters. You're slaves, and so therefore, yes, you could be forced to, to submit to your masters. But Paul says to the slaves, to the slaves no, as Christians, voluntarily submit yourself to them. It would be a very natural and understandable thing that a slave would not wish to submit, would not wish to be subject to his or her master. In fact, if I was a slave, I'd want to rebel all the time. I'd want to do anything I could to undermine my master, to get out of being a slave. But Paul teaches here this is the radical principle. Be one that willingly submits to your master. And on top of that, be one that's willing to submit your own masters in everything, in all things. The submission is comprehensive. Regardless of whether your master is a Christian or not, whether they are good or bad, submit to them. Of course, for the Christian slave, this would not include anything that would violate God's commands. That's true of even a wife submitting to her husband. You would, not be, you would not, as a slave, be, have to submit to, to murdering or doing, committing some crime or testifying falsely or do something illegal or something that's morally, uh, that would violate God's law. But in all other instances, in all other cases, the slave is to be subject to their masters, 
to submit themselves to the authority of their master. Paul makes a similar point in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 and 24. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You see that principle here? This is that middle voice coming out again. It would be subject, well, or ignore the middle voice comment, but this is that idea that God wants you to, to genuinely, willingly, not just do it because you have to, but do it because it's in your heart that you honestly, sincerely want to do this, and you do it for the Lord. Whatever you, and then Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward and the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We find further confirmation that the slave's submission to his master is ultimately as a slave of Christ, submitting to the Lord. We saw this with wives, right? Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Slaves, submit to your masters as unto the Lord. Whether we are slaves, whether we are free, every Christian exists to serve the Lord, right? And so for many, that service to the Lord is by means of our service even to our earthly masters. Now this should have a, I believe, should have a profound impact in how we go about our work. Now we've all quoted Colossians 3, 23 and 24, right? We've all memorized it. Whatever you do, do your work hardly as for the Lord, you know, <laughs> knowing that it's Christ, Lord Christ whom you serve. I love this. That's just a great kind of a thing I memorized a long time ago. No one ever asked me to memorize Colossians 3.22, though, huh? <laughs> but it's in that context of slavery, isn't it? You can't miss that. Slaves submitting and obeying their masters. Now, we all have supervisors. As we're employees, we have supervisors. We have bosses that we all report to and work for. Some we like, some we don't, some we respect, and some we disdain. Have you ever thought about the reality that how you serve your boss is how you are serving the Lord? No matter what you may think of your boss, your submission to them is a reflection of your submission to the Lord. That's the truth here. That's the principle that we find here. Your service to the Lord in many different ways. It's not just here what you do on Sundays here at church. It also includes what you do Monday to Saturday, Monday to Friday at your workplace when you serve your earthly boss. That is a means by which you serve the Lord. It's a worthy thought. As people observe us in our workplaces, do they see us serving the Lord? Do they see us like Daniel? Do they see us excelling for the work, seeking the good, seeking to, 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 uh, to, to be submissive to our leaders? Well, we move on. Our second principle is that we are to be well-pleasing. Not only to be subjects, uh, slaves are to be subject, but they are also to be well-pleasing. Not only were slaves to submit to their masters, but they were also to be well-pleasing. That is, satisfying to their masters, pleasing to their masters. This Greek word is used nine times in the New Testament. So, and it's almost always used exclusively by Paul. Paul uses this word eight times. The only one other time was in Hebrews. But in every use, the word well-pleasing... It's variously translated pleasing or acceptable. It's interesting, and it's kind of noted by a lot of commentators point this out. It's everywhere that it's used in the New Testament, it is used with respect to being pleasing to God or the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other place, eight, all the eight other passages, it says to be pleasing to God or pleasing to the Lord or acceptable to the Lord. 
And so some have translated this particular principle to be well-pleasing. This is not being well-pleasing to, to your master. This is being well-pleasing to the Lord. But I don't believe it's that. Uh, I do believe that's being well-pleasing to your master. Because in all those other cases, God there is explicitly mentioned or explicitly inferred by the text, in the context. But here, no mention is made of God. It's just simply the word well-pleasing, which in its common Greek usage was simply just broad, well-pleasing. It could be well-pleasing to a person. So it's most likely that slaves here are to be well-pleasing or accept do, uh, pleasing to their earthly masters. That's the idea. Of course, the idea of being well-pleasing to the Lord is not far removed. Certainly, we consider the parallel passage that we, one, we looked at earlier in Colossians, but also in passages like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 and 8. There, uh, slaves are, we read, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, rendering service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. See, the motivation for slaves here to serve, to do what they do, is, notice, it's, it's the Lord. Yes, they are... Titus, though, says to, to be well-pleasing to masters, but ultimately all slaves will desire to be pleasing to the Lord. Verse 5 of Ephesians 6 says, Be obedient as to Christ. Verse 6 says, Not as men pleases, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. Verse 7 talks about render service as to the Lord. In verse 8, we do so because he will receive back from the Lord. The focus for a slave is ultimately is to be well-pleasing to God. And he, is well, he or she is well-pleasing to God when he or she is well-pleasing to his or her earthly masters. To be well-pleasing, what does this mean? Well, it goes beyond the idea of submission even. Whereas submission manifests in obedience, willing obedience, well-pleasing manifests in consideration. Consideration. It goes beyond just saying, doing what the master commands, but takes and consider what the master likes. Without the master even asking, the slave will seek those things that he knows his master is going to enjoy, that his master will be pleased by. If he knows that his master loves and cherishes his wife and children, that slave is going to do whatever he can or whatever she can to make sure that the needs of the wife and the needs of the children are met and more. If he knows that his master likes a certain drink, then he's going to make sure that that drink's always around. Coffee, for instance. Hmm. Well, in a similar way, as employees, to be well-pleasing then is more than just doing what's asked of you, right? More than just doing, you know, by the way, if you're just doing what's asked of you, you're probably not a very good employee, okay? I'm just telling you right there. That's a very clue if you're a new employee, you're just doing what's asked of you. You want to be a person, you want to be someone that's pleasing to your boss, do what's beyond and above what your boss asks of you. Understand your boss's plan. Understand your boss's goals, their thoughts, what, what makes them tick. And take initiative to help your boss accomplish those plans and goals. Be Daniel. Be like Daniel. Be well-pleasing. That's what we are to be as those who are employees. Thirdly, we move on. Uh, a, a bond slave that's pleasing the Lord is going to be not contradicting. Not contradicting. We see this in the last part of verse 9. Our English translations have not 
argumentative, not argumentative. But the, in order to kind of bring out the verbal idea here, there's a, there's a Greek verbal idea that it's an action here. It's not just this description of an adjective, an argumentative, but it's really, we could say not arguing, but I, I've chosen to take the literal translation of this word, the literal meaning of the word is not contradicting. This word is only uh, is used or used three times by Paul, twice here in Titus. We find in Titus 1.9, in the first time, where Paul tells Titus to choose elders who are hold fast the faithful words so that they will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and then to refute those who contradict, those who are basically oppose uh, the sound doctrine. Paul's other use of the word is in Romans 10.21 when he describes Israel as being a disobedient and obstinate people. And the idea there is basically of being a rebellious people. They're always, uh, the Israelites were always contradicting, rebelling against what God said. God would tell them this, but then they would do something con quite contrary. You see, a slave that submits to his master and is well-pleasing is one who will not continually be contradicting his master's commands. Depending, of course, on the role of a slave, some slaves have higher roles in that, and they might even fulfill a task as sort of advisors and counselors. They may have a freedom then or even a responsibility to express to their master when they believe that the master's decision is wrong, right? Not wise. But as a general rule, for the majority of slaves, they were not to be regularly contradicting or opposing their master's commands. They were to submit to the Lord, even if they never have a say about it. They were to, they said, well, that's not probably not what I would do. But they were simply to fulfill when their master said, do this. They were to say, yes, I will do it. They're not to follow just their own thoughts on what to do, but to follow their master's thoughts. They're not to be rebellious slaves. And that's, again, quite profound. Here for a slave who has every reason to rebel, every reason to undermine his master, every reason to, to, to try to get free. But instead, because of Christ, he is instructed to not seek to rebel against his master, but instead is to be loyal. It doesn't mean that he's not to be, try to be free if, he's, if that's possible, but it is never to be sought by rebellion or contradicting or disloyalty to the master. His, his, the slave's first priority is not his own freedom. He's already free in Christ. His first priority is to serve his heavenly master, and that is by serving his earthly master. <clears throat> so as employees, we can apply this to us as employees as well. Christians should not be imposing their boss's instructions all the time. Yeah, now certainly we have, in, in the workplace, we, communication is important, and a, a terrible boss would be one who doesn't want to hear when, when you, you know, what you think, okay? All good bosses are going to say, well, I want to hear what you think. They, they're wise. They're going to seek counsel from those who report to them. They want their feedback. They want to kind of, uh, but nevertheless, we are not to be always outwardly opposing our boss instructions, where maybe you have... You, you have to follow your boss. You, you must follow your boss. Right? But if you disagree, you should go to them privately. You can communicate your concerns. But if they've heard your concerns and they still want to go forward with that decision, you've got to follow that decision wholeheartedly, with eagerness, with zealousness, with excitement. You don't go around telling them, I'm doing it, but it's a really a dumb idea. My boss, our boss is an idiot. You don't undermine your boss. You don't stab them in the back. You are supportive of them and the directions they are taking. 
And yes, that's radical today, isn't it? Today as well. Because we too have earthly masters that are sometimes unreasonable, sometimes wrong, sometimes bad. But yet God calls us nevertheless as, earth, as those who serve a heavenly master to serve our earthly masters well, to not be contradicting them. Fourthly, godly bond slaves are, are not to be pilfering, not pilfering. This is, uh, again, I think another pretty straightforward idea. Basically, you shouldn't be stealing from your master. Uh, the word means to put aside for oneself, or in other words, to embezzle, to misappropriate, to steal. Uh, now, the word pilfer, I'm not sure if that's the best translation. I, I know the translators are godly men, so they, 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 they had an idea that the context here must be a pilfering because maybe they feel that you know, slaves would never get away with just grand larceny. Okay? Pilfering, which implies stealing small things. But the same word is used only one other place, one other passage in all of Scripture. It's used in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias, we know this story, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property okay, and, uh, and kept back some of the price for himself. That word kept back is the word here for, that we translate pilfer. Kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, land, as you know, is just like today, is something that's pretty pricey. Not of, it's not of any insignificant value. So this word that's translated pilfer really can apply to any amount, whether great or small. Whether you're stealing a, a paper clip or you're stealing property, money. Yet, think about, again, the, the, all these instructions are just so radical. For many slaves in those days, they had, they had very, many of them had little means for their own gain. They were slaves. They're, some of them were paying off debt that they owed. And keep in mind that if, the only way they could ever be free is if someone would pay for their freedom. So if the only hope is in being purchasing your freedom, you have very little means to gain, what else would you be tempted? What would you be tempted to deal? To skim from the top, to steal what you can, to get what you get, to, so you can sell it on eBay, Craigslist, get a little money for yourself, for your family. Things that would, probably would not be missed anyways. Things that are just going to, oh, they're just going to throw that away even. This kind of practice would have been quite common among slaves in that day. Would have even been considered acceptable behavior among slaves. Even today, uh, businesses, pro retailers, and uh, people who sell things, they understand they, they, that, that part of their loss is employee theft. It's part of doing business, sadly. And I'm sure all businesses, great and small, understand that, oh, where do all those paper clips go? <laughs> well, yeah, employee theft, pilfering. Stealing, though, is not to characterize any believer, and including slaves. Ephesians 4.28, the born-again Christian instructed this, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. As Christian employees, we should not be stealing anything from our employers, not only big things, but especially the little things, especially the little things. You know, if you can feel justified taking the little things from your work for your own personal use, then you can justify taking bigger things when your need for personal use is greater. So don't steal office supplies. Don't steal food. Don't steal anything from work. 
Don't steal time. Fifth and lastly, slaves don't pilfer, but they also instead show all good faith. A good Christian slave will manifest all good faith. In contrast to the, to the negative, not pilfering, there's a strong adversative, but this is what you're, you're to be. You're to be showing all good faith. That is, he or she conducts themselves with such integrity that shows that they can be trusted, that they can be dependable and counted upon. His master will have, can have confidence when he puts his faith in his slave. This slave is trustworthy with little and is trustworthy with much. She is dependable and loyal. When she says she will do it, she will do it. Such a slave is dependable, trustworthy, and loyal. That's what showing all good faith includes. One of the most recognized and well-known household slaves in those days was the, uh, was the steward. We've heard of all how they kind of heard different sermons on the household steward used by Jesus in different parables from time to time. But he was responsible for the matters of the whole household. He was a, oftentimes a slave, would be given great responsibility for everything in the house. When the master was gone, that man, that slave, was the master of the house. He ran everything. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, particularly verse 2, says that it, it even equated ministers of the gospel as stewards of the mysteries of God. And he says of these stewards, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So here's this important principle for stewards, this, this slave, that he needs to be faithful. He's entrusted with much. He has to be faithful with it. He has to have all, let's demonstrate a trustworthiness. As Christians, Christian employee, Christians, we are to be faithful too. We're to be faithful first and foremost with the gospel, like Paul was and his fellow ministers of the gospel. But we are also to be faithful as employees with our work, with whatever charge our bosses give to us. We need to be dependable, trustworthy, loyal to our boss and our company. We are to show good faith. What does your time at work demonstrate? If we were to go and ask your boss or fellow employees about you, what would they say? Would they say, oh, man, oh, man, that, that, our, our, our fellow coworker, he, he or she he is absolutely loyal, dependable, and trustworthy. You can count and depend upon them. That's wonderful. That's what they say. You're showing all good faith. We say, well, you know, you know they're not that dependable. Uh, sometimes I can't count on them. A lot of times we just kind of, uh, give them, like, projects don't matter, really matter because we kind of know that, that he or she won't ever get them done. As Christians, we need to be faithful. We need to be trustworthy. For such is what God asks of slaves. Well, as we conclude, we end when we end. We're not, you know, we're almost there. We end with this purpose statement. This purpose statement at the end of verse 10. And this is an important purpose statement because it describes the purpose for why slaves need to behave and conduct themselves in this way. Verse 10 says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. This is the goal for why slaves who have been redeemed by Christ are expected to conduct themselves in this radical, counterintuitive way. So that they will adorn, like putting on clothes, you know, 
Sometimes you think, of, I almost think of the, I, I, almost the image comes to me of, of a model, right? Models exist not to make themselves look good, but to make whatever they're modeling look good. You know, it doesn't matter if you think the, the clothing is ugly or the, the hat is ugly or the bag is terrible. You're a model, you want to put that on and just make it look fabulous so that everybody else wants that thing, you know? That's what models do. You know, so it's like, don't you want to buy this suit right now? You know, because it fits me so well. You know, that's the idea. We, we as Christians, particularly as slaves, are to adorn, put on the doctrine of God our Savior. That's put on the gospel. The doctrine of, of our God our Savior is the gospel. Model the gospel of Jesus Christ. Model Christ who came and humbled himself and took on the form of a bond slave. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We are to put on this gospel of Christ to make the gospel such, of what it, to reveal the gospel for what it is. We don't need to make it attractive. It is already attractive. We need to put it on so that people will see. Oh, look, there's a life that's completely transformed by Christ because they put on Christ. I want that. And how radical it is when slaves who are completely unexpected because of their low social standing, because of their, their, uh, that people expect them to be rebellious, people expect them to steal, people expect them to be untrustworthy, when they behave completely opposite. That's what Christ does, the transforming power of Christ. That transforming conduct makes the gospel shine. If Christ is our Savior, brothers and sisters, Christ is the one who has delivered us from the greatest of all slavery and slavery to sin, then the fact that I, if we are slaves on earth is of really no eternal concern. Yes, if I can be free, I should seek it. But whether I'm free or not, I'm now free in Christ. And I'm a slave of Christ. I must use my freedom not for myself, but for Christ and for others so that they might come to know Christ my Savior too. If I can live my life in such a way that testifies to my, to, to my earthly master of my heavenly master, then I will do so for the glory of Christ. I will sub be subject to my master. I will be well-pleasing to my master. I will not be rebelling or contradicting from my master. I will not steal from my master, but I will show complete faithfulness to my master because of and for the sake of the gospel of Christ who died and rose for my sins. And if this conduct is expected of involuntary slaves for the sake of the gospel, then how much more for you and me? Voluntary employees for the sake of the same gospel, we can think of work as a means for our own gain. It is such that. It provides. It gives us pleasure. It gives us identity. But let us think of work as much more than that. Let us see it as a means of the gospel witness of the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Thank you that you give us all work on earth. And though, Lord, we... Uh, you know, we, uh, we recognize that, uh, that we are imperfect, that, we are some t that our flesh and our sinful flesh manifests at work from time to time. Lord, we pray that you would do a transforming work in our hearts.
that you would take these principles that we've learned for slaves, that we apply them to us as employees who answer to our earthly masters here on earth. Help us to be good workers who reflect and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior before our bosses. Not just for our bosses, but for you, for Christ, for our heavenly boss. Lord, sanctify our works. Help us to see that our mission is fulfilled in what we do Monday to Friday, not just what we do Sundays or Fridays or weeknights when we have free time. The Lord cause us to be disciple makers, witnesses of Christ through the transforming power of the gospel in us in this wonderful institution of work that you give us for the glory of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you continue to build your church as we, ref- as we conduct ourselves in a manner befitting of the sound doctrine of Jesus. Enable us to do so by your grace, Lord, not by our own effort, pure efforts, but in dependence upon Christ and in, 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 in a response to your word. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Exit out my right, your left, to Sunday school class, and we'll see you next week. God bless.